Welcome to the Daily Theology Podcast, episode number one. I am your host, Stephen Oakey, one of the editors at dailytheology.org and an assistant professor of theology at St. Leo University in Florida. This podcast is a new initiative of the Daily Theology blog that will feature conversations with theologians and ministers about the craft and vocation of theology. Today's episode features my conversation with Julie Hanlon Rubio. Dr. Rubio is a professor of Christian ethics at St. Louis University, where her research focuses on Catholic theology of marriage and family, as well as Catholic social teaching. In today's conversation, we talk about how she went from theater to politics to theology, the role of the family in her teaching, research, and life, and her advice for newer theologians. Please let us know what you think in the comments on iTunes or on the blog, and thanks so much for listening. So to start with the you know the sort of the, the questions I, I have or the, the the things I'm really interested in are the craft and vocation of being a theologian and you know the the first question for me that that comes to mind with that is is just how did you how, how did you come to be a theologian what were you know what was your path like or your process like for doing that yeah that's a great question um, so I came to college not exactly knowing what I would major in, but having an idea that it might be theater. Oh. Um, <laughs> and which was one of the things I was really into in high school, but open to almost anything in the liberal arts. And I took courses in, in just about everything and was really trying to just figure out, you know, what was what was most meaningful to me. And, and I ended up with political science, perhaps because I, I thought that was the best way to change the world what I was interested in. And I did take two courses in religious studies. And I spent Were they... a lot of my extracurricular time doing religious <laughs> uh, campus ministry kind of stuff um, at Yale. But, but it's, I don't think it ever occurred to me to major in it or, or certainly not to be a theologian. But then afterwards, you know, I just, I really wasn't sure that I wanted to go into politics. I wasn't sure at all. And so I spent two, well, a year and a half in Washington, D.C., living and working in a place called Mary House, which was, uh, was and is a shelter for families, and primarily, and it's changed over the years, but when I was there in the late 80s, it primarily was for pregnant women who were coming from Central America as refugees, so undocumented women. And so I worked and lived at Mary House with those women, and then I also did a lot of other things around town. I worked on the Hill. I worked with a lot of different organizations, and I read a lot, and I just found myself drawn back again and again to um, to theology books and determined that I wanted to go to divinity school. And really once, I went to Harvard Divinity School, but, but I took took moral theology at Weston. Oh, sure, sure. Yeah. And, um, and really, I mean, I can, you know, I can say that it was really my first moral theology class with David Hollenbach. It was fundamental moral theology really from the very first day of class that I thought, this is it. This is what I want to do. <laughs> All the time. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, that, um, and that stayed with me throughout all my courses with him. And it, it was just the sense that in, in a way these were the kinds of questions that I had always been asking. I, I mean, I think questions about the meaning of life and what are we supposed to 
do and what does it mean to be a good person and live a good life. Another question I would always ask, I mean, I would ask them, like, to friends at parties in high school and, you know, stay up till four in the morning talking about them. And, and it seemed to me those were the kinds of questions that theology and especially moral theology asked. And, and that was what I wanted to read and that was what I wanted to think about and that's what I wanted to, um, to teach and explore with you. You sound like you were a lot of fun at parties then. <laughs> and so that that really fit in with the like the political science background and the work on the hill and the work at Mary House and all of that. It's, it, it does. I mean, people often say, "How did you go from political science to theology?" And I'm kind of like, "Well, what? Why is that confusing?" <laughs> yeah, seems like the most obvious thing in the world. Yeah, right, right, yeah. Especially because I mean, what I do is mostly ethics, and and especially my the ethics I do is is more applied. So it's more specific issues, and I and I feel like I use my background a lot. I mean, I read a lot of social science. So I, I mean, some moral theologians might might read more in philosophy, and 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 I would I would read a lot more in social science as my interdisciplinary go to. Yeah, and I know a lot of what you've done has been in like family ethics, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the you know the practices of the family and and how to get live a good life and you know be good people and the the way that that connects to larger social ethics is that is that am I understanding that right? Yeah, that's right. Um, my so my dissertation was called a, a Catholic social ethic of the family, and and that really came out of uh, my own experience because when I was in well when I was in uh, graduate school in Boston, um, that's when I got engaged to my husband, and that's why I was thinking about marriage, and it just. It, it occurred to me that there just wasn't there wasn't a lot that that I wanted to read in theology that was on marriage. I was certainly much more attracted to the parts of the tradition that had to do with social justice, but but I didn't want to give up that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, when I got married and had a family, um, and so I, I wanted to see about bringing the part of the tradition that I thought was the richest to this other part of the tradition, which is where most people lived. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where I started out, and then I, and I think it just happened to be a, it wasn't sort of a calculated choice, but it, it happened to be a, a pretty good decision because I just think not that much had been written on it before, and so people were interested in this kind of approach. So, so I've done a lot about, a lot on that since then, although my, my degree, which is actually from USC in, a, in Los Angeles, is actually religion and social ethics. Oh, interesting. So yeah, the program is, was really focused on social ethics. It's just I use that lens to look at marriage and family. And you you see that as having like played out then in your own life. There's a, there's immensely sort of personally practical dimension to that kind of work. Yeah, which is which is both um, exciting and challenging and, and humbling <laughs> at times. <laughs> um, does, does your family ever accuse you of using them for research? Oh yeah, it's like what 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 do you practice? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so that's been interesting for sure. But yeah, I mean, I felt like I've been able to to use the issues that that came up in my own life and the life lives of people around me and say, okay, well, what 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 might the tradition have to say about that? Because part of I think, and I think I share this with uh, with moral theologians of um, 
like generation, loosely speaking. There's kind of a frustration with, with ethics that only deals with controversial issues mm-hmm. that are important, you know, but don't come up in most people's lives, you know, on an everyday basis. And I thought that when I saw people around me struggling with ethical issues, they weren't the kinds of things that were in moral theology books. And so part of what I tried to do is think about what are the what are the things that people really do struggle with and, and how can I bring the resources of the tradition to, to those issues and also bring the experiences of, of being a married person and you know, knowing married people and being a parent and all of that to theology because that's not something that the tradition has had a lot of because most people are recently I mean most theologians certainly were not were not married, we're not parents. Would you then, like, would the language of vocation be something that you would describe, use to describe your coming to be a theologian? Is that, I mean, is that helpful vocabulary for you, or is it much more sort of a, like, a happy coincidence, or along those lines? Yeah, or? I mean, yeah, I like, I like the language of vocation. I mean, I really, I really see it as, as my life's work, as, as what I'm called to do. Mm-hmm. I, I've written a bit about what I call a, a dual vocation, so that, I think often in the Christian tradition, we've, we've thought of vocation maybe in a limited kind of way, religious life or married life. And, yeah. And also, yeah, and then sometimes also we've prioritized certain kinds of vocations over others, for sure. Mm-hmm. And so what I, my own um, experience is that I'm called to, to different vocations. So definitely to my vocation in my career as a theologian, but also my, theolo- my vocation as, as a parent. And that, you know, neither of these are, so it's not that, you know, the theologian part is the most important part or that the, the mother part is the most important part. So I kind of, I worry, like, when I hear people saying, well, you know, when you really realize what's important, it's all about family. And I think, well, you know, yes and no. Yeah. <laughs> Family's important and my vocation as a mother is important. But I feel like as a Christian, I'm also called to have an application to the world that's broader than that, and that these two vocations work in creative tension, and yeah, both both are part of what I'm called to be in the world. And so the like the like what I'm hearing you describe is sort of a way of thinking about the universal vocation to holiness that that we'll talk about in, in, in Catholicism especially can be understood in a not just in a diversity of, you know, many parts, one body, we all have different vocations and different ways of participating and building the kingdom and so forth. But even individually we have a multitude of vocations and, and different things that we are called to. Yeah, I like that. Um, and I, I think, you know, I have to say I remember when I was student in at Harvard and I was doing campus ministry Field work at St. Anne's Parish at North, um, near, which is connected with Northeastern in Boston. Mm. I remember people wanting to do a session on, you know, a, on call of holiness, and and at the time it didn't really appeal to me. Um, that language seemed. <laughs> why? Why didn't? Why didn't it appeal to you? Out of curiosity, like what? What about it? Like threw you off or bugged you or? I think maybe the language of holiness was not mm-hmm. a, a language that um, that spoke to me. It, it seemed. Um, connected in my head, maybe with priests and nuns and, I don't know, not fun. Yeah. Like it, <laughs> it, it, it feels like a loaded term in a way. Yeah. 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 So I, I was not a fan of wanting to have a, have a lecture on the call to holiness. <laughs> but, um, but since then, I, I think I've got a, maybe a better grasp of the term and, and a sense that, it's part of the problem that, that, that we have thought tended to think to associate holiness only with religious life 
family and work and all these things as part of a call to holiness. And I think part of what I try to impart to my students is, is a sense that, you know, that, that all of your life is part of this call. There's no, there are no pointless actions. There are no meaningless hmm. um, parts of your life. It's, it, it's all, it's all one or, or the, or the, the struggle, I guess, should, should be for it all to be one. Okay. I had, um, but before I got married, I I wrote this blog post about it was I was on Holy Family the Holy the Feast of the Holy Family and yeah. and I I had talked about this idea of like being called to holiness within you know the family I was forming and everything and you know some concerns I had about that and everything and I was just about to get married so I was you know a little nervous and yeah. <laughs> at the wedding one of my my now wife's uncles pulled me aside and he's like I thought I just had to be an okay husband now I have to be holy I'm like oh. <laughs> Sorry, Uncle Tim. <laughs> he gave me some guff for that. Um, so you you've you've talked a bit about you know like the the research that you do and, and the work that you do, and you and you've talked also about you know your students and your teaching and 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 that part of fulfilling your your life as a vocation. How do you see those influencing one another or balancing one another? Or I know I know you said today was a, a writing day for you, and I'm I'm a little jealous. <laughs> you get that you that you carve that out and so so how how do the sort of the, the twin aspects of research and teaching work for you as a theologian yeah i i really love aspect of my job i mean i am among the the lucky well <laughs> we we think about it this way the lucky ones who have a have a lower teaching load and, and i realize there's an irony in that yeah. um but so i have a i teach two classes a semester and so, uh, but I would never, I would never want to teach less than that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not too interested in taking a research leave on top of that. And I wouldn't mind teaching more. Yeah, I really, I really see the, the work in the classroom as being, as being really vibrant part of my work. It keeps, it keeps me kind of in the loop, I think, about um, where students are and how these concepts that might sound really wonderful in my head or in my conversations with colleagues don't don't play in the broader culture and it, and and conversely sometimes my students bring to me things that from their own religious lives and theological thinking that that push me so I find teaching to be really really wonderful work also hard work I mean I, I feel like yeah. I've been up for a long time now I mean I started I've been at SLU since 1999 and before that I had four years of teaching part-time at Cal State Long Beach mm. in Loyola so it's it's a long time, and I, and I feel like I've I've gotten better over time, and and you know I I feel successful, and yet, um, and yet every semester is is the hard work of trying to find just the right readings and ask the right questions and connect with this new group of students, and so it it is certainly never boring, <laughs> um, <laughs> and I'm constantly constantly changing it, and, const- and I I feel like you're constantly failing and teaching as well. Yes. It's really humbling. This is and this is a feeling I know well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that's really good, I think. Um, so so yeah, I mean, I, I guess I hear both a criticism of my writing as well as a as a as a compliment to my writing that that it tends to be accessible. <laughs> mm, yeah. Um, and and I think that's because I don't have a strong separation between a line of separation between the teaching that I do and the writing that I do. It's not a totally different thing for me. I just don't write those kinds of books, do, um, or at least I try not to. So I think that makes me perhaps a less serious theologian in some people's <laughs> eyes. But it's, um, I've, I've come to peace 
do you I know you you used to direct the MA program at, at SLU, right? Uh-huh. You, you, but, but not anymore? I'm not doing it anymore. No, I did it for about six years. Okay. Three, three years, sorry. So do, do you get a mix of undergrad and, and grad students is what you teach? Oh, it's mostly undergrad. I, okay. I teach a, um, a grad class usually about um, once every two years. Okay. Um, and do you find the the research that you're doing, like, do you do you construct classes to teach kind of around that? Or do you just find, like, the, the topics and ideas kind of come out naturally? Or Yeah. I mean, I think, I think generally we think more about teaching what our students need. So we try to think about what's, what's important in the field and, and, and what do they need to know to be good teachers or campus ministers or, or, or whatever they're going to be. So I try not to make my research agenda central to the to the formation of the classes in some ways. I hear students talking about how they're they're not so thrilled when they're reading all the stuff for one professor specific kind of research. <laughs> um, but with that said, I mean I mean I do do a, um, a seminar in that I call family ethics, mm-hmm. um, which is not a term that everyone uses, although although some people use it. It might it might be called at another school gender or mm. or sex, sexual ethics, sure. um, and we deal with those kinds of issues, but I broaden it out. So so in a way, there is there is time for me in teaching that seminar to, like, brush up on what's, what's new in the field and things like that, and then hear how the students are, are receiving those kinds of readings. So there is that part. And then, like, in the fall, I'm teaching a seminar in fundamental moral theology, which I've never taught before. And, and it's, that's exciting to me, and, and it feels like I get to do, like, fill in some gaps and go back to stuff that maybe I haven't taken a look at since grad school. And there will be a part of it that will be focused on some of my current research interests, which has been this older concept of cooperation with evil, which I think is really exciting. Mm. Um, yeah, so it'll, be, it'll play in in parts, for sure. So how often would you say you assign your own books for your classes? Okay. In the seminar in family ethics, I, I kind of feel like I kind of have to. Yeah. Um, so, so we do. It, it's awkward, but um. <laughs> but, uh, do Do you yeah, feel guilty? So, <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I try. I mean, I try to build a you know a sense in the classroom, even you know way before we get to that of you know everybody, every author we read is somebody we read with with uh, hermeneutic, hermeneutic of generosity as well. Mm-hmm. good and you also i mean in a in a topic area where there's you know not a ton of work available it's not as though you know there were 20 books and you you're picking yours just because you like yours only i mean it's i mean especially like uh i mean in an area that doesn't have you know as much research as, as some other things uh you obviously like you. I mean, you believe in your work, so uh, I mean, if you're if you're not a, if you're not assigning it, the students are going to be like, "Well, why aren't we reading your book?" But I I had a professor once who he he had wanted to assign a, a different text, and it was out of print, and he ended up assigning his own, and he he was he was acted very guilty about it, and he he said that, and this is like a thirty five dollar you know hardback book or something. Uh-huh. And he said at the beginning of the semester, you know, when we get to this section of the class. Every one of you who brings in your copy, I will give you a dollar because that's roughly what I make on it. 
Like, it's not like I'm not doing this to make money. And sure enough, that day he came in with a stack of ones. And every, <laughs> I think I still have the dollar in my copy of that book, actually. So I, I always thought if I ever get to that point, that's a, that's something I might adopt myself. But <laughs> that's a great story. <laughs> <laughs> you had mentioned before David Hollenbach's class having a, an impact on you in the study of moral theology. Who might be some theologians or thinkers or mentors who had a big influence you on you, or like you know texts that had a, a big influence on you in your in your development as a theologian? Yeah, I mean, in terms of my education's a little bit different, I think, from a lot of theologians because I mean, although I went to grad school, at, well, I went to grad school at Harvard, and so my my advisor was actually uh, Francis Fiorenza. But you know more in systematic theology. But then I took my my ethics from David Hallbach, and then also from from Lisa Cahill at, at Boston College. And so in a sense, they've been mentors to me. But but all, but I I did not do my my doctorate with them, so uh, so I'm not their student in the same way. Sure. Um, that that others others are now. Uh, with that said, I mean Lisa was. Is, has been particularly influential for me. I mean, I remember going to her when, you know, I was just taking a bioethics course, but and just asking her about her own career and, you know, because she was one of the few women theologians that I that I knew about. Well, I like Margaret mm. Farley, but especially a woman theologian with children. I knew she had five sure. children. Yeah. And, you know, I sat down with her you know, how did you do this? And she and I remember her saying, you know, um, I just think that you're probably you probably wouldn't do. I mean, just crazy things, you know, staying up really late and getting up really early and trying to do it all. Um, and I somehow made it work. And But I knew that, I at least knew that, that it could work, you know, that it could happen. And so I think it was really important for me just to, just to take a class with her and to get to know her a bit, um, just because there were so, there are so few role models of for women in theology. So that that was really important. And then in terms of reading, it's interesting. I I mean, I think there, there are plenty of great theologians who are influential and even to the, you know, I mean, I'm somebody who loves to read Catholic social and cyclical quotes. Mm-hmm. 
Global Liberation uh, Theology that comes out of uh, Central America as well, kind of influential. So, and then, you know, often when I was, especially when I was first doing work on marriage and family, often I was finding more popular sources that were dealing with the kinds of questions I wanted just because there wasn't more sophisticated work yeah. at that time. I mean, um, do you mean like, like self-help books, like that kind of popular work or... Well, I think about, like, for instance, when I was in Boston, one, I, and I was preparing for marriage, my pastor, the pastor at St. Anne's, gave me a book of prayers for engaged couples, and he mm. read his name Austin Fleming, mm. as well as a, a guide to prepare for the wedding liturgy that was put together by Paul Cavino, who's a liturgical theologian. So those are, you know, systematic theologies of marriage and family. Oh, okay. I see what you mean. But... Yeah, but what I found there was, was pretty profound, and so I, I guess my approach is pretty eclectic, you know, mm-hmm. so there can be, you know, encyclicals on Aquinas and liberation theology and, you know, <laughs> yeah. prayers, um, all, you know, because I'm just kind of looking for wisdom that can be applied to these issues from lots of different sources. Have you, how have you integrated the the insights from liberation theology or the life of Dorothy Day into into thinking about the family. I mean, I, I know I, you know, just based on my own background, I sometimes have a, like a default temptation to think about, you know, a, a sort of white middle-class two-parent upbringing as, as kind of the norm. And when I think about family ethics, like uh, insofar as I do, that's kind of the, the background that I have for that. But one thing I found um, in, in working with, with deacons uh, as part of my job here at St. Leo is uh, sort of highlighting how, how diverse families are. I mean, certainly, you know, one parent families or, you know, uh, more complicated family structures due to divorce, but also, you know, something different from nuclear families. Uh, how, how has liberation theology or Dorothy Day or these kinds of sort of often overlooked sources helped shape your understanding of family ethics? Well, that's where I think, you know, Dorothy Day is, I mean, somewhat helpful, somewhat not. I mean, in, in not because the not part is that, of course, she, she left Forrester, her love, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and raised her children, her child in a community. But on the other hand, she is a single mom, mm-hmm. um, and, and grandmother, and a lot of her, if you read her journals and letters especially, there's a lot of reflection on, on what that means to be a, to be a single mom and the struggles of that. And then certainly her, I mean, although, Tamar's family was nuclear. They certainly were not middle class mm-hmm. um, and just struggled a great deal. So, I mean, I think, there, I think there's that. I think it's so important for us to not have a family theology that is that is just for perfect families. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I actually think it's, it's a problem. It's hard to get beyond. Yeah, it, it's just hard. So so there's, there's a sense in which keeping myself immersed in the lives of people who are not white and middle class has been helpful. I mean, I guess added to that is is also the social science. I mean, so in trying to get a handle on what families do look like today and the realities, I, I think the social science has probably been more influential for me. I mean, yeah. On the other hand, there's a... I mean, I think my work has rightly been criticized hmm. for being maybe too targeted to middle-class families. And so it, I'd say, well, yes, I mean, it, I, in part, I, ha- I feel like that's, a, that's been a part of my focus because there, 
that's kind of where I'm coming from. Yeah. And I feel like I have something to say there. But I've tried in my more recent work to um, to deal more with the diversity of families and then the kinds of social structures and other things that may need to that may need to change if we want these these kinds of practices that I talk about to be more widely adopted. Yeah, and it it is profoundly difficult to speak from outside of your context. And it and it's dangerous to try to speak for someone who is not in your context in a certain sense. So I, I yeah, I, I I entirely understand that difficulty that you're that you're sharing. I ha I have uh, kind of a different question, and this goes back to I mean you mentioned the the influence of Lisa Cahill and kind of her experience on a on a, like a purely like practical or logistical level. I as a as a junior faculty trying to figure things out am intensely curious about like how how do you structure your day or your week like what I mean Fridays are writing days for you uh, you had said and so that makes sense to me but how how is it you do all of the things that you have to do as, as successfully as you do Well I would say maybe the maybe the feelings aren't as, aren't as glaringly obvious from the, from the outside but um, <laughs> And uh, in the summer, I would have more more time. So that's kind of how it 
worked in the early years, although I have to say the early, those, you know, the first years on the tenure track are kind of a blur to me. <laughs> 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 um, and, um, and it was, you know, it was beautiful and crazy and, and, and all of that. But, you know, it got easier every year. And, you know, it, it's an awful lot easier now. I mean, now I have two of mine are now in college and one's in high school. So it's, it, it, now is a time where in the early years I, I said no to a lot of say, service and things like that, mm-hmm. and things I just couldn't do. And, and now I can say yes. And, and so as long as I home, at kind of the crucial times of, you know, meals and I'm at games and, and in, you know, with teenagers, it's more like you have to be around at crucial times. Sure. Um, but they can dress yeah. themselves and feed themselves and yeah. <laughs> clean up after themselves potentially at least so yeah yeah and so i mean we still you know we have dinner together every night and all that kind of stuff and try to do something but it's but it's very different mm-hmm. um so it's worked out and i hope i mean i hope that the kind of serious time management skills that i that i had to employ graduate school because i had two um, babies during graduate school oh wow um, yeah, and then after served me well now, so I can still be somewhat efficient, although never as efficient as back then. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah, and so I yeah, yeah. it was crazy for a while. But the flexibility, I think I would be constantly looking at my schedule, going, okay, now what? Now what? How does it have to shift? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is there any sort of particular advice or recommendations you would have for graduate students, early career theologians, junior scholars, people kind of? you know, on on the other side of the tenure track or, you know, early on figuring out what they want to do? Yes, let's see. One piece of advice that I that I heard early on is that the kinds of patterns that you set early on in your career very often stay with you. Mm. And that and that there are at least three parts of your job in terms of the teaching, research and service. And that and that it's really important to to and they're equally balanced, obviously, but, but to, to keep those going um, mm-hmm. and make time for those from the beginning. So I found that to be really helpful so that, that I have, there are times, I mean, of course, there are times in the week when I say I'm going to write and then I can't because of whatever. But generally speaking, I do try to carve out times for different things so that I'm in a, in a kind of look, keep looking at, you know, okay, how many service commitments do I have? Is that too much? Is this, is this really what I yeah, is what I need to be doing right now? So there's that part, just keeping those three things going all the time. Like I think maybe the temptation would be when you come into a tenure-track position, I've, I've just got to get the teaching done, and, 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 and then the writing keeps being pushed off and, mm-hmm. and keep that there. I think it's important. And the other the other piece is, is that I is that I, I try to keep asking myself, is this is whatever I'm doing, is it what I'm passionate about? Is it really even yeah, part of what I'm supposed to be doing, part of part of my particular vocation as a theologian, is this what I love? And of course there are gonna be parts of your job that you know, you just have to do. But but I hope that's not too much of it. And um, and I try say, you know, to say no or to back out of things if I've if, if, if they're non-fulfilling, if I really don't think they're fulfilling or important. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I feel like, yeah, we do have this incredible, like, we have so much luxury to make up these jobs. And yeah. We can construct our lives so much more than most people can. And so we should really take advantage of that opportunity yeah. to construct um, 
lives there as fulfilling and, and are as as giving as we can. Yeah. So so those two things I, I think are those two kinds of questions that mm. I ask myself. Yeah, that's really helpful, especially the you know establish good habits early kind of idea. So so to close with, we have a short sort of questionnaire of less serious questions okay. uh, that, that, I, I, that we'd like to know. And so I, I have five of these. And okay. the, the first is, what is your favorite biblical name? <laughs> I know there's a lot to choose well, from, but... <laughs> my favorite biblical name? This is something I have not thought about. Barabbas? <laughs> it's a solid pick. Solid pick. Uh, All right, all right. What is your favorite and or least favorite liturgical song? <laughs> wow. like, like, is there a church song that just gets you going, or is there one that just, you know, you'd never want to hear again, or? Wow, well, that, that just brings up a lot, you know, because <laughs> I'm a child of the post-Vatican II church. Sure. Um, and so it's all about the stateless Jesuits and and. And my husband has more sophisticated musical taste, will make fun of me because I, <laughs> I do still love the music of the St. There's a, I, one of my favorites is A Time Will Come for Singing. Okay. Um, yeah. Oh, it's lovely. And, and, and as much as I'd, I'd, probably people listening will not know who this is, but, but Ray Rep was very important in the church of the 60s and 70s and had some of the first kind of guitar, you know, um, songs. And I actually got a chance to meet him when I was in college, and he was a wonderful guy. But some of those songs from Ray Rep probably need to be retired. Are they bongo heavy? Or... <laughs> and clapping and shit. Yeah. Yeah, very, very <laughs> <laughs> we could probably do better. All right. Of what or whom would you be the patron saint? <laughs> um, theologian moms? <laughs> Maybe that. that. That is a good position. That is a good one to pick. <laughs> that's a place for them in my heart. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's wonderful. What profession other than your current one would you like to attempt or might you have done had, had things gone differently? would have been it. But I do I do have interest still in I guess social activism. There's times when I think I just want to go and work for, for Catholic charities or or a Catholic campaign for human development. Mm-hmm. I could see that. And I guess in, in a more wistful way, the idea of being a, a journalist who hmm. goes around the world and writes about justice issues, that, that kind of appeals to me hmm. as well. A good backup. <laughs> yeah, yeah, backup. And, 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 and if the stage didn't work out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then lastly, believing that heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive? Where did you come up with me? <laughs> that, that, I'll, I'll be honest, that last one I actually stole from inside the actor's studio. <laughs> but... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I think about um, John Cavanaugh, who was um, a Jesuit at St. University, wrote for America, a philosopher. I think Eleanor Stump, who's also a 
that he that he always would would say what he wanted. They would they would talk about this this question, like, hmm. uh, and and they would you know, and she would say, well, what do you think God would say if you you know you went to heaven today? And I, I guess and near the end of his life, um, I think he said um, that that God said that God, that he felt like he wanted God to say, or that that he thought God would say, well, uh, well done, good and faithful servant. I'm not sure, and with the tortured soul of a moral theologian, I'm not sure that I could ever completely rest in thinking thinking that that is, is going to be God's response, but, um, <laughs> but at least I'm glad you're here. <laughs> it's, it's something to hope for. Yeah. All right. Julie, thank you so much for doing this and for, for talking with me today. Thanks there... for the conversation. I appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate your time so much. Have a great day. Thanks. You too. The Daily Theology Podcast is produced bi-weekly by dailytheology.org. Daily Theology is a Catholic blog that pursues faith-seeking understanding in everyday life. You can find us online at dailytheology.org, on Facebook at Daily Theology, or on Twitter at Daily Theo.